Yeah, so this week, Russ, I was listening, going through the uh, Deezer list. I had to uh, delete a lot of, like, so-called favorites, and I found, um, huh. I was listening to that song, um, the Rare Earth song, I Just Want to Celebrate. You oh, yeah, know that yeah. One? It's a great really one. positive song, really mm-hmm. funky. I really yeah. like it. And I was thinking, yeah, I remember um, my dad used to have, like, a live version of this on 8-track tape. Back in the day, <laughs> eight track. Wow. Yeah, and it had uh, it had a like a thirty minute version of Get Ready on it. And you, oh, you know, yeah. That was um, that was you know how eight track tapes were where they would fade the song and then it would change like channels and then the song would fade back up where it left off. Yeah. That that was on three different channels. You know of those of the eight track <laughs> tape was crazy. So wow. I was I did a search for it on Deezer and they had it. I was amazed. And not only did they have it, but it turns out that um, back in the day. Uh, I had only heard half of the concert because there was like a whole other like album. I guess it was a double album. Oh wow! And I didn't even know it because my <laughs> my dad only had one of the two eight track tapes. Oh. So so there's a whole part of that concert I've never heard before. Now I'm kind of hmm. been listening to that all week, kind of trying to catch up with uh, with my youth there. If I'm not mistaken, they were on Motown Records too. They were on yeah a division of Motown Records, and they had their own label. It was called the Rare Earth label, oh, cool. but it was a it was kind of a sub like a division of Motown. Hmm. Yeah, Motown was funny. They had like a whole separate. I don't know if it was the Rare Earth Records label, but they had something separate for for white funk acts. Right. You know, like Motown was just for black artists, and then they yeah. had they kind of found, started signing these like white funk acts and put them on their own sort of label to separate <laughs> them. A little segregation back in the day. <laughs> Well, is anyone else out there listening old enough to remember eight tracks? I don't know. Yeah. Or the Rare Earth. Anybody remember the Rare Earth? You should listen. Yeah. I don't know that that's our audience, really. But if they <laughs> listen to jazz, they might kind of dig the, the funk from the 70s. Because that led into hip hop as well, all those funky beats and stuff. Yeah. It's really if you cool. grew up in the 70s, you remember all of that stuff. And yeah. you'll mm. be adults. And that's why you're listening to Adult Music, the podcast yeah. with music for the mature and aging mind. With the uh, aging mind, maybe. Included. Maybe we That's should right. change our logo. <laughs> but uh, we uh, focus on classical and jazz our motto. Yeah. Yeah, for our regular selections. And this week we're up to episode 113, and we're going all-American this week with uh, all-American classical composers and uh, saxes in the jazz categories. We've got a lot of really good music and uh, some interesting outliers in uh, <laughs> in uh, terms of uh, structure and composition tonight as well. Yeah, well, that would be that would be uh, in keeping with the American way, wouldn't it? Right. Especially like in classical music, they really do go off the... Uh... Well, classical music, it's a little newer in America. It's only about... Uh, I, I guess I'd put the, the beginning of it to Dvorak's uh, New World Symphony because he really started that whole mm. sort of American style. Right. You know? Before that, it was kind of imitations of... Um, European styles, mostly German and French sometimes too. And in fact, an interesting, here's an interesting fact for you. That's how Japan started in classical music. They founded, um, this is before World War II, I think. They founded uh, a school for composition, but it was completely based on the German method of composition with the line Mm. and the long line going through the work. And they had a French teacher there too, who kind of, I guess, did the French style. But Japan it didn't really develop its own. It really took some genius to really come up with some kind of style that could be considered Japanese, and that would be Toto Takamitsu. Yeah, and, Takamitsu, um, right. Yeah, but no one was really breaking out of that. It's it's pretty interesting. It's an interesting history, but they kind of, yeah, so far it's really Tok- Takamitsu. There. Now, recently we had Ryuji Sakamoto, who recently died too. Right. But he wasn't really a classical composer. Yeah. He was kind of more of a, he was a composer though, but he did mostly film music, and he was, right. he's, he was a bit of a minimalist, I think, in mm. my opinion. 
Anyway, for all of this uh, music we're going to get to here in a moment, uh, if we've got any new listeners, you can find links for it to Spotify and Apple Music in the description below. Also, you can get all the music in one place. That's on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform. Just look for the episode playlist link as well. They have podcasts too, so you can check out the Adult Music Podcast and get the playlists all in one place. Now, whatever kind of platform or app you listen to us on, if you don't see the full description or the apps aren't active links, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And everything's easy to follow there for this and all past episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend if you got any music-minded friends, maybe interested in classical and jazz music, let them know that uh, every week we're going to bring you some great new releases. And take a moment, give us a ranking, write a short review. That helps us get listed in the recommendations for the music categories. It's another way we can get new listeners. You can also come over and follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there, and we post some new releases and other information throughout the week. You can get little updates there, leave a message or comment. We had a lot of interaction with uh, the artists last week on the jazz side. We had Tristan Banks and some of the other drummers there that were pretty enthusiastic about our episode last time, which was nice. So you can see that kind of interaction happening. And you can also get in touch with us by email if you've got any questions or comments. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also sharing our audience with some other music-related podcasts. If you need some more podcasts to get you through the week, check these out. You'll find links to them with little descriptions down at the bottom of the episode. And at the end of the podcast, you hear a little audio promos from each one. The first one is Tom Gowker's Something Came From Baltimore. That's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast featuring a lot of famous artists and different themes every week. There's another interview one called Famous Interviews in Neon Jazz. That's by Joe Domino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. Then we've got a jazz-oriented one called Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standards. And Mike's been getting into this one lately. Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Abra look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week, and they play snippets from each version, discuss the history of the original, and look at the different versions. And they're kind of funny. They have their own preferences and uh, ideas about what's good and not. And they're they're asking for um, recommendations, too. And I'm thinking of making one uh, because I have a favorite jazz song that I'd like to hear them talk about. So maybe I'll write to them. We'll have to see. Great. We're going to hear a few standards uh, later in the program in this week's Jazz Selection 2. All right. So we're ready to go here. We're all American tonight. We have to think of a a title for this episode. It's very rhythm heavy uh, Mm. in the classical and, of course, in the jazz. I mean, jazz is really all about rhythm. So maybe we should go, just go for some kind of a, a rhythm, rhythm and reads or something like that. I, don't know. I think, I think the word American yeah. has to be in the title so people okay. know that we're doing uh, keep that American composers. And uh, I had mentioned Ryuichi Sakamoto earlier. I said he was kind of minimalist, and he was. But uh, one of the, the really groundbreaking minimalists was uh, the first composer we're going to talk about. And listeners might know him, Steve Reich. He's a contemporary composer. In fact, all of the composers we're going to talk about today, this is a first Mm. on the adult music podcast they're all still living some of them are pretty old but they're all um contemporary right. composers so how about that we're going to hear all music by living composers tonight and who said classical music is just old stuff <laughs> you know they keep saying it's dead white men these these are old yeah mostly white men but they're not all white guys either so mm. we got a little bit of a variety here today anyway first of all steve reich and this is a recording of his complete string quartets he wrote three of them 
by the Mivos Quartet, and this is on Deutsche Grammophon, which is also pretty interesting. The yeah. Deutsche Grammophon uh, label <laughs> really uh, stretching out. On this and the next release we're going to talk about, too, they really have some two pretty interesting releases this month. These came out, I think, in March, February. So anyway, Steve Reich is very much a minimalist, and his um, his composition style is heavily based on rhythm and repeating notes uh, or repeating patterns again, but with shifting rhythms. And one of his first experiments was to kind of like pit a rhythm, sort of two rhythms against each other and sort of um, they, they'd be a little out of sync. So one would fade into the other and then pass it. Mm-hmm. I know that in, uh, in um, hip hop um, and in, um, you know, even in some jazz now today, they have uh, uh, Jay Dilla came up with this uh, technique in hip hop beats, which is not the same as Reich. He, he does it a little differently. But uh, this idea has been around a, a bit in classical music. So he started like that, but uh, these works don't really do too much of that. Reich, by the way, said he never expected to write a string quartet. <laughs> hmm. And now we have three of them. And the reason we have three of them is because of the Kronos Quartet, who um, commissioned all three of these that we're going to hear tonight. And I think they've, you know, I think they've recorded all three of them, too. These have the other addition of having uh, like looped tape recordings in them, which makes them very unique. Yes, all of them do. As well. Yeah. yeah. So none of these are, you're not going to hear four instruments on only on any of these. They're kind of, um, even, there are even recorded uh, string quartets on them too, like just playing these rhythms as the, uh, the mm. live string quartet adds more. So I've never heard one of these live, like in performance. I really like to, but to see how it's all yeah, done. Hard to imagine. Yeah. Because yeah, I want to see actually what the, the live string quartet is actually doing, because it's hard to tell on the recording. You're just hearing this massive sound. So the Kronos Quartet, um, as I said, um, commissioned all these. And this is the first time all three of these uh, quartets have been put on one album. So if you're a collector, you might want to do this. And they are, well, we'll get to it. Um, One of the very famous works on this um, album is Different Trains, which was um, Reich's first Mm. string quartet. And I remember I have the original Kronos Quartet album, which is paired with... um, a work uh, that Pat Metheny plays for the guitar, Electric Counterpoint. So it's a pretty famous uh, release in, mm. in classical music on the Nonsuch label. And it's still available. I don't think that'll ever go out of print. It's one of those you know, really cool records that really cool people own, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, of which I guess I'm one of them, but because uh, I've had it for a long time. Anyway, let's uh, take a look at this. These go in reverse order of when they were composed. I should mention Reich, I believe he was born in 1937. So that puts him in his uh, in his 80s. He's in his uh, mid-80s yeah. now. So he's uh, he's pretty up there in age. Okay, so the first work on this is um, called WTC 911. Now we can guess what this is about. Yeah. It's about the, uh, it deals with the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. And this piece was composed in 2010. So it's not a an immediate response to that, which is probably a good thing. It's built around voice samples related to the World Trade Center attacks, much like Different Trains is um, based on older recordings. One of the things that, about, that's so interesting about Different Trains is the uh, recordings are all archival. They're, they're from a long time ago. They're not from the period, but they're people who worked on those trains and who are remembering them. Right. Okay. But we'll get to that one later. The WTC 911 work uses technology um, that can slow down a recording of a voice without altering its pitch. He couldn't do that for different trains, but now with uh, computer technology, we can do this. He wanted to do this early on in his career, but um, this is the first time he ever used this. Uh, So you can hear that here. It's pretty subtle, really. You're not really sure. 
because you don't know what the original voices sounded like. So they're kind of, you know, you're just, you're just given what you're given. One of the things he does is extend words and phrases. We have these, um, yeah. so that um, one person's speech, like their, like their last syllable maybe will be a little longer and it'll um, become part of the harmony of the next person speaking. It's, it's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. And very subtle. And he matches mm. those string pitches in the next phrases to the intonation of the voice, which is a pretty interesting effect if you've not heard it before. Reich does this also in different trains. In fact, I think that work was the first work in which he ever did this. Mm -hmm. So WTC 911 winds up sounding a bit like different trains in technique, but not in um, overall. It's it's the same in approach, but not in the way mm -hmm. it kind of plays out because it's a this is a, a bit of a more harrowing work, to be honest, although yeah. it's very listenable. One thing I want to say, by the way, about American composers um, writing uh, works about serious events is it rarely comes across when you compare them to say european composers who like shostakovich who wrote just these harrowing works about you know the uh, about world war ii that dealt with certain things in uh, the history of the soviet union and then when americans have something like this when they write pieces about the war or something like that it's rarely it really has that same effect uh one work that does is um george crumb's um black angels which is about deals with Vietnam and things like that. That's worth a listen. But uh, <laughs> if you have anybody in your house who doesn't like music that's going to chase you from the room, you might want to wait till they <laughs> go away. It's a work I really like, though. It's really kind of exciting. Anyway, let's get back to Steve Reich here and talk about this. WTC 911. The first um, movement is labeled 91101, which is the date of the um, terrorist attack. Uh, the strings... Um, in this case, reflect the urgency of the time. And the voices in the first movement are all recordings of people on the day of the terrorist attacks, not of people remembering, which is going to be what the next two movements feature. So this is kind of a unique movement mm -hmm. in Reich's music, because Different Trains is going to be, is, it uses a similar technique, and all of those people are remembering in that case. The piece opens with a the sound of a, a busy signal on a telephone. It's really it's a phone yeah. left off the hook, and it's pretty chilling. It's sort of like the uh, sirens and the, uh, the the shrill train whistles in the second movement of different trains. I'm already talking about different trains. Let's wait till we get to that at the end. Uh, the harmony is pretty chilling too. The bass line builds around the cadence of the voice, and once the strings come in, we can hear that the recording is crystal clear, with excellent separation between the instruments. And there are more than just these four instruments being heard. There are also tapes of the others. This helps the performance despite the fact that the uh, string quartet is conceived of as a single instrument in the writing. You can still hear, because all the lines are just this big band of sound all moving in the same direction, mostly. Some, sometimes one instrument will step out. Usually they'll take on the, um, the contour of the voice that's speaking, and one of the instruments will pick that up and start sort of playing the the cadence of the voice on its instrument. The, this movement is mid-tempo and has a really chilling edge to it. And it's built around the telephone off the hook rhythm. And it's uh, short to at 3 minutes and 38 seconds, which is probably a good thing because it's already giving me this creepy feeling. <laughs> the second movement, called 2010, and this is the year that the, uh, the work was uh, composed and first performed by the Kronos Quartet. This and the next movement returns to the documentary approach. The cadence of the voice turning to the melodic material is very obvious here. Uh, the movement is uh, double the length of the first one. And uh, at the 54 second mark, the uh, 
Steve Reich rhythmic approach begins with the voice cadences working themselves into that. Again, the recording is exceptionally clear. The rhythm chugs at a mid-tempo speed. It's kind of like a speaking speed. And the voices set the tempo in this. That's not the case with different trains in which the, uh, the clackety-clack of the trains speeding on the tracks really sets the rhythm. Hmm. Let's see. The voices uh, in the sixth minute, a droning chord stops the rhythm, except for the moments when we hear the voices. The third movement is called uh, WTC. Now, this means World Trade Center, and I think Reich had that intention. But Reich said that his uh, colleague, David Lang, pointed out that it could also stand for world to come, as in the, the credo, I believe in the life of the world to come, right, in the, the, the Catholic Mass. And, and uh, Reich says it's apt because um, Reich focuses in this movement on the women who sat with the bodies of the dead, uh, often for months, owing to the difficulty in identifying the victims. And they sang psalms to ease the soul's journey to the next world. They didn't talk about that on the news. This is really new mm. to me. And this is really, to me, why art exists. It informs us about these just little human moments that we don't uh, normally hear about. We end with the same sound the piece began with, a telephone off the hook. It starts at a slow tempo with a rhythmless chord shifting. And it kind of reminded me of like a, a Renaissance sort of song accompaniment. It, it, it's, it's not like a Renaissance. It's not polyphonic. It's all pretty much in this, moving in the same direction. But um, it had this kind of light sort of chord feel to it. There's a religious feeling to the movement, mostly due to the drones and the prayerful quality of the voices in the psalm singing sections. The calm is interrupted by startling chords starting around the 3 minute and 50 second mark and at 4 minutes and 14 seconds we have the phone off the hook again and that's how the work ends i gotta say this kind of left the whole um movement the third movement started um kind of calming me down a bit but this kind of left me a little a little chilled i think it's a pretty effective mm -hmm. political work mostly because it just uses its material it's not trying to make a statement the statement is just made by the material and i think that's part of the the secret to it mm. anyway Movements four through six, we get to something more abstract, the triple quartet. There are no vocal samples in this work. This is the only work on this album that doesn't have any. Uh, this work was written in 1998, and it was inspired by the energetic ending of Bela Bartok's string quartet number four. That energy charges both of the outer movements. And I was kind of wondering about this performance. It sounds great, and this one sounds lighter at the beginning, so it's kind of like a breath of relief after um, WTC 911. It's got clean harmony. And the instruments hocketing their rhythmic lines from speaker to speaker. So if you listen to this in headphones, it's, it's really kind of cool. Yeah, uh, pulses. Yeah. Uh, a mid-tempo melody is played in between, and that theme repeats itself quite a bit. At the minute and nine second mark, there's a sudden change of texture and material, as is Reich's way. Now, he does this in all three of these works. There's no sort of shifting from one slowly from one rhythm to the next or... They just suddenly change, like almost like a splice in a film. Suddenly you're in another rhythm. And it's pretty startling and uh, remarkable, too, considering that uh, the string quartet is doing these sudden changes hmm. so well. I, I suspect that those are part of the recorded element. There's another two minutes and 42 seconds, by the way. It's easy to get absorbed by, though some may feel the repetitiveness to the rhythm is off-putting. I didn't, but I do have something to say about listening to this for a long time. <laughs> uh I find the subtle changes in the moving lines to be fascinating, actually. Another sudden change occurs in the third minute. Uh, melodic lines really stand out thanks to the clear recording and performance. This is probably the best recording we've ever had of uh, Steve Reich works, although there have been other recent ones that are also very good. 
The old Kronos Quartet one of Different Trains, which is the only one I've heard of these three works, is a bit veiled in its because it's an older recording, and I think the engineer was trying to go for the the, the massive sound rather than trying to kind of give you some kind of clarity. The performance of the rhythm here is very carefully measured and uh, may take some excitement away for some because the uh, Bartok work is actually a little faster and a little more kind of um, aggressive than this. The, the Bartok uh, last movement that is based on from his fourth string quartet. The second movement, these label, these movements are just labeled one, two, and three. They don't have any tempo markings. Reich calls this movement basically one long, slow, multi-part cannon. Remember, a cannon is um, like row, row, row your boat when different voices come in after one bar and they're all singing the same line, just starting at different times. This movement connects to the previous movement. There's no space in between. The rhythm suddenly stops and the material quietens as droning strings are heard and above them the instruments of the live string quartet play the canonic material at a slowish tempo. The melodic material compresses a bit and the lines get longer as the movement goes on. Just before the end, the material changes and leads directly into the third movement, which is just Mark three. This has quicker music. Uh, the patterns continue as the harmony suddenly changes and the movement goes on and abruptly ends after three minutes and 30 seconds. I don't know other performances of this work, but I thought the uh, playing could have more aggression, although maybe this is the intention. I really have nothing to compare it to. The recording and performance, though, are both uh, crystal clear, and I believe Steve Reich was on hand for the recording, so uh, if the, photo the photos in the booklet notes show him working with the quartet, so I'm guessing this is really what he intends. Okay, that was just what I thought just from hearing other works, but I could be wrong. Tracks 7 through 9 are the very famous uh, quartet Different Trains, written in 1988. It was inspired by cross-country train rides that the young Steve Reich took in the early 40s, and the uh, very different train rides a young Jewish boy like Reich would have taken in Central Europe at that time. Just want to say on the streaming, these are broken up into uh, smaller tracks. Ah. So the uh, whole recording has 18 tracks on the Deezer. So the different movements have parts one, two, and three. Wow. Um, so you have to look uh, carefully at the scrolling lines if you're listening on your uh, smartphone or something. So do they have something to do with when the rhythm changes, I guess? The sudden... Yeah, the kind of rhythm change becomes different parts. Yeah, the CD does the uh, same thing that the original Kronos Quartet recording does. It just separates the tracks into three move the three movements. Right. You have set three tracks, tracks seven through nine. So in the uh, on Deezer or on streaming, it would be tracks seven through what? Different Trains is tracks 11 to 18. Oh, I see. They've done this again earlier, yeah. too. Wow. Okay. I am, of course, going by the CD, but not for much longer <laughs> because the... Uh, Japanese yen isn't doing me any favors over here. Anyway, the piece weaves voice samples together with string quartet layers. Three of the string quartet layers are pre-recorded, and the final layer is performed live. Uh, this was the first hmm. of three pieces Reich would compose for the Kronos Quartet. And what a difference this is from the um, Kronos Quartet as far as recording quality goes. The voices, which are all pre-recorded, are really pushed up in the mix much more. You could easily hear what they're saying, uh, and that's sort of relevant to the work. Okay, the first movement is called America Before the War, and uh, the voice of a train porter and of Reich's governess are heard. He had a governess. Mm, fancy. Mm. Anyway, this movement is full of the uh, mid-century American optimism. <laughs> so if you want to remember what that was like, <laughs> you might want to go to this movement. 
The clear sound gives this an advantage over the more veiled recording of the Kronos recording. Train sounds are vivid, and the clanging metal rhythm in the opening is three-dimensional to sound like it's coming into the room. The sounds are like a slightly faster performance than the Kronos, though three of the rhythmic string quartet lines are on tape, so I think they would always be the same speed. Just in my sense, I didn't actually measure them against each other. The live quartet seems to be playing the shapes of the spoken phrases that we hear. Like you'll notice, like you'll hear a phrase of somebody talking, they'll, they'll say the years, 1939, and then the, um, maybe the cello will pick up that cadence to say like, dun, 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 1939, yeah. you know, that's the technique he's using to um, shape this um, work as the, uh, the string quartet's chugging rhythms really have the sense of like a train speeding on the tracks. And uh, the tempo is really good and aggressive in this. I really enjoyed this. The recorded voices sound like they've been remastered or brought up in the mix. They're very present here, and I really liked that too. This is a fantastic performance with all the sense of optimism that Reich intends in this movement. The rhythmic patterns slow down by steps as the movement goes on, and then speed up again. So it almost makes like a, a V, kind of like uh, going from fast to slow in the middle and then speeding up gradually, not gradually, but in terraces, sort of, these sort of terraced uh, tempo slowdowns and uh, speed ups in this movement. The sound is less densely packed in the section of 4 minutes and 42 seconds, though, and at 5 minutes and 45 seconds, we leap back to a speeding train rhythm. It sounds with great urgency and optimism. It's going where it wants to go, just like uh, the country was at the time. Nothing's going to stop it. It speeds up even more in the sixth minute. Uh, Reich remarks that the train sounds from his youth in the U.S. had a bright sound to them. What he means is the whistles here. And that's what we're hearing in this movement. They add to the sense of optimism when you hear the train whistles and intention that we hear in this beautifully executed movement. At 8 minutes and 18 seconds, the voice is saying 1941. And that's going to be a key year, of course, because we know the U.S. is about to enter World War II at the very end of that year which is already underway in Europe and Asia. Then the voice goes back and starts saying 1940, and the rhythm abruptly changes. We're in Europe during the war. This is the second movement. And we suddenly hear air raid sirens, um, yeah. and they're very vivid on this recording too. They were sort of um, present on the uh, Kronos recording. You were aware of them, but here they really do sort of make themselves um, felt. Three of the voices heard on this track, this uh, second movement, are those of three Holocaust survivors. And um, I remember on the Cronus recording, the shrill, there were shrill train whistles, and they really gave a chill because um, you were thinking about where these trains were headed, and it kind of had that kind of chilling effect. But we're not getting that in this movement. I think the quartet itself is making the, uh, the train whistle sounds on this, or it's mixed down, or they're using a different sound. It's different, though, than it is on the Cronus quartet performance. So that's something hmm. that kind of puzzled me a bit. I did like that original train whistle that the, the Kronos Quartet used in that, on their recording. This is a little different. There's a more cautious rhythm now as this movement begins. The rhythm chugs along, but is consistently slower as the voices become more urgent, and their patterns in the quartet speed up relative to the underlying rhythm. So you had these like fast, optimistic rhythms in movement one with these slower voices, and now that's reversed. The voices are kind of Urgently speaking, and the uh, train rhythm of the string quartet is slower. It's kind of a nice uh, contrast. The connection between the vocal cadences and the patterns in the live quartet is very clearly underlined in this performance, so newcomers to the work will pick it up quickly. At 2 minutes and 42 seconds, we hear the train whistle as a chord. It's not as vivid as it is on the Cronus recording. 
It's got a completely different sound, as I mentioned, but it's effective. These trains are headed to the Nazi concentration camps, of course. And I have to say, I'm not getting the chill from the whistle sound that I got from the Kronos recording. The train whistles aren't up front here, but the recording is clear and vivid, and they're noticeable as something happening in the background. The different sound is intentional here. This is something that the uh, Mivos Quartet decided on, and apparently Steve Reich was present, so he uh, approved. Okay, it's a recording sound of an actual train whistle. I don't think it's a recording here. The movement fades out as though we're turning our back on the tragedy, which is kind of odd. And then we get a pause, and then we get to the third movement after the war. The music here emerges back into the sun, but it doesn't necessarily end in happiness. The train's porter's voice at the end returns and says, but today they're all gone. And in fact, he says that in about the sixth minute. Well, and I've made a little note here. That's what art's for, or one of its purposes, to remember that which has disappeared. And uh, it's part of the reason we have books, uh, classical music works, and even those old jazz recordings. Uh, <laughs> jazz isn't the same now <laughs> as it was then. Anyway, this starts with uh, only the live quartet sounding vivid and vigorous in their playing of the rapid rhythmic lines. A sense of optimism is back as we're back in the U.S. after the war. The recorded sound at a minute and 56 seconds is very vivid, and I'm guessing we're hearing members of the live quartet playing the rhythm and the hard bowed chords that slash across them. We're hearing recorded bright train whistles and some familiar confident fast rhythms from the first movement. The optimism fades a bit with the words, but today they're all gone, which is said by a train porter in the six minutes, somebody who used to work on those trains. A sense of nostalgia creeps into the rest of the movement and a bit of sadness at the disappearance of a world that once was in the USA as well. And in fact, this is happening yet again. So I guess uh, this, this uh, work is still relevant today for that reason. The movement just leaves off abruptly at the end. Okay, so... To conclude, Reich's music always makes my head cloud over a bit. Um, focusing on these repeating patterns for such long periods of time is a bit of a strain, easy as they are to follow. I heard the first two quartets on one day and different trains on the other, and I suggest you do something similar. WTC 911 can really give you sort of a, a heavy feeling. The original Kronos Quartet recording quickly became a contemporary classic of different trains. There have been a few other recordings of different trains over the years, all of them good and better sound quality than the Kronos, uh, which I mentioned has a veiled quality to it. Also, as far as like timbre goes, the Kronos Quartet were never really the best. They were kind of aggressive and exciting. They didn't really have a beautiful sound. I think they had, they wanted more of something. They wanted kind of a nasty sound just because of the way, mm. the way they presented themselves. But it, they sounded good, but it was a little more rough sounding. But this particular performance, this one of the Mivos Quartet, might be the best recorded performance of them all. There are significant differences in the details of different trains that you'll want to hold on to the old recording while adding this one. So this doesn't replace any of the older recordings because it's just a little different. Performances are excellent and they're really top drawer. And the recording is the most vivid I've heard of these works. This is the only release, as I mentioned, to have all three Steve Reich string quartets on them. And you shouldn't hesitate if you're looking for a recording of them all. This is really a must-have album for Steve Reich fans anyway. Um, he's been being recorded a lot lately. There's just, uh, in fact, there's a new recording by the Colin Curry group that just came out like uh, last week or two weeks ago that we may or may not talk about. It kind of depends how things go, but that I'll definitely be listening to at some point. And uh, this is another welcome addition to the growing catalog of recordings of his music. Yeah, this music is definitely 
machine-like yeah. in character and also incorporating those uh, recorded kind of loops. And now normally I, I don't care for this type of approach to music. It's just a little bit too mechanical for my taste. But I was interested in these, especially for the subject matter. So the World Trade Center, of course, I watched that happen on live TV from Japan, which you know still is in my memory. So you know, hearing these voices retell that uh, with the you know, this narration. Yeah. I remember we were listening, where I was living, I had other friends over and we were listening to it on shortwave radio. I mean, it was oh, on wow. TV, but I mean. <laughs> yeah. You know? I saw it. I actually called my mother in New York to tell her to turn the TV on. Right. Because I saw it first yeah. just by chance. My friend had a shortwave and he wanted to get like other kind of a voices. Like right. if you hear what people were saying about it, you know, that wasn't the news. I was a bit mesmerized with the matching of the voice pitches and picking up in the strings. It was and cool. Then, yeah. Also, the way that when the recordings come back and you get kind of clipped versions and then they're extended, so you hear a little bit more the next time, and then it's reworked into the string compositions. So it is kind of intriguing. So I was uh, pretty much uh, interested once I was uh, involved in those kind of rhythms. And I really liked the uh, train one because, you know, trains yeah. are a subject in blues music. And in jazz, you know, of course, you've got the train sounds in Ellington's A Train. Yeah. And you get a lot of, you know, Americana old songs incorporating the train, which was a big part of people's lives. But it's not a yeah. subject you expect in a classical music composition. Train, train rhythms are also kind of present in like drum patterns, too. Like there are certain ones yeah. that are based on like train patterns in jazz and rock and roll, too. And so although different trains is machine-like to the actual effect of the train movement and then the whistles is really kind of interesting to hear that pulled off with the, you know, with the strings, because it's not really the first instruments you would choose uh, to do that, but it works really well. And the recorded voices are interesting. And then, you know, you're sort of reminded of what's going on in history mm. before the war and then, you know, during and after. So, you know, despite my sort of reservations about this style of music, I found it pretty entertaining and I was pulled in more and more with the unveiling of the clips and then right. the sort of narrative of the tunes. So yeah, definitely give it a shot, even if it's not really your kind of thing. Yeah, I think part of the secret to Steve Reich, um, so I started hearing these like when I was in my 20s, maybe in college, I don't really mm. remember, but uh, I was very young at the time and you're just so open-minded then. Um, I'm, I still try to be open-minded, but I do notice that I'm kind of like, eh, I don't really want to, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to be challenged anymore as much. But, uh, so, but this has become part of my world now, so I'm kind of a little bit used to it. Right. You know? Yeah, trains. Boy, Americans and trains. There's a lot of uh, folklore, yeah. a lot of folk songs about trains, or a lot of uh, rock songs that dealt with that too. Oof. So this really is right into the American sort of uh, yeah. story here. Different trains. All right, next, a, a recording called The American Project with Yuja Wang, super virtuoso, amazing superstar pianist Yuja Wang. She was Chinese-born on the piano with the Louisville Orchestra and conducted by Teddy Abrams, who's also the conductor of the main work on this album. And this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. Again, Deutsche Grammophon, really uh, adventurous these days with these uh, contemporary yeah. releases. Nice to see. Anyway, I didn't really write anything about this until we get to the Teddy Abrams Piano Concerto, but this album starts with um, Michael Tilson Thomas, the famous conductor. He also composes. Hmm. 
And this is a work he wrote for Yu Jiwang. Uh, you come here often <laughs> for piano solo. <laughs> As in, hey, you come, do you come here often? You know, something you'd hear in a bar. And we do get yeah. that sense from this uh, piano solo work. So whenever I hear a piano, a work for a new work for piano solo, I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if uh, I could play this. And uh, no, not this one. <laughs> so it's really, <laughs> this sounds really hard to play. Anyway, Wang is the uh, dedicatee and uh, first performer of this piece. It was written in uh, 2016. It's about five minutes long, a little less than that. The opening is inspired by rock music um, because of the repetitiveness, I think. It doesn't really sound like a... A rock. It's got a fun bass line. Yeah, it's, you got a, it's got one of those repeating bass lines. It starts rather quietly, but with an aggressive, uh, tightly etched rhythm. Uh, the opening comes across as an aggressive kind of minimalism with themes repeating as in a rock song, though it doesn't sound like rock to me. In the first minute, the rhythm suddenly changes to something more spacious and slow. At the two-minute mark, the opening material is heard again. At two minutes and 30 seconds, it's another musical comma. Then the opening material threatens to start up again, but something more spacious intervenes. There's an actual wolf whistle at three minutes and 32 seconds, like some guy whistling at a pretty girl in the bar, which I guess is, reflects on the title. The speedy, tightly etched rhythmic material comes back at the end, and the piece ends with a rousing final few measures. Again, some pretty amazing virtuosic playing by Yuja Wang in this piece, but that's just a warm-up to what we're going to hear next, which is absolutely astonishing. This is a piece by Teddy Abrams. It's his piano concerto, and it was written for Yuja Wang in 2021. It's hot off the presses. It's the major work on this album. It's about 40 minutes long. And when you think about what you're going to hear uh, Wang playing on the piano, almost continuously for 40 minutes, this really is um, something up there with... Uh, hearing uh, Marc-Andre Amelon play um, the uh, concerto for solo piano um, by, um, what's that guy's name, the French composer? Ah, when I was in college, I heard this. It was, it's this 30-minute movement of, um, oh, I can't remember, I can't remember. It's slipping my mind now. I can't believe this. I'll get to it soon. Anyway, this was written for Yu Wang in 2021 and premiered in uh, January 2022 as a companion piece for a concert featuring Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Hmm. Yeah, and you could pick up on some of that related Gershwin-like themes in this as well. Yeah, so right away, though, I'm wondering, the Rhapsody in Blue isn't on this album. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... It would be good to put them together. Yeah, yeah. Although this, this work really is does go virtuosically way beyond the Gershwin piece. But the Gershwin piece is so well-known and appealing, and I really would have liked to have heard Wang play it just to hear her take on it. Yeah, but uh, we just get the... Um, Abrams Piano Concerto and the Tilson Thomas solo piano work, and it's a it's it's a forty eight minute album. The uh, Gershwin could have easily fit on. Anyway, they didn't do it, so here we go. But I, I have to tell you, this is a pretty amazing, exhausting work to listen to. Yeah. So uh, it's, maybe yeah. it's just as well in a in a sense. But then again, you could have just listened to them on different days. Anyway, there's uh, plenty of space uh, on this record for that. They didn't do it. Abrams is going for an American sense of plurality and interconnectedness in this work. Track two, this is the first section. This is really, the work is divided into uh, 11 sections, but they all sort of connect to each other. I'll go by the track number here. So track two would be the first section. This is the overture, and it's labeled Swing. And it actually starts with a vocal count, as though someone's counting down a jazz band or a, a rock song or something. 
It's jazzy with a swing feel and some good sounding wind and brass harmony. Uh, the orchestra gets a good swing feel, which makes me feel relieved. <laughs> they are, after all, in good hands with the conductor. Those brass could be more brash sounding for more of a big band feel. But we're in the concert hall after all, and they actually liven up towards the end of the first minute. We get to track three, which is Cadenza 1, and this is the first time we hear the piano in this work. It's a wild entry with an aggressive glissando. Boy, she really attacks the piano with these glissandos. I just I can't even imagine what this would do to your hands. Followed by old-timey stride or boogie-woogie piano style. And I have to say, Wang puts the style across pretty well, uh, completely with some fast runs in the right hand. Uh, Wang seamlessly goes from stylistic change to stylistic change, playing the material as if it's all of a piece. I could imagine other pianists not quite holding all of this together. In the second minute, the style shifts out of jazz and into a more measured rhythm, back to jazziness in the fourth minute, and some virtuosic pyrotechnics, especially in the right hand. I'd say it's astonishing, but I've been hearing Wang's playing for some years now, and if you're new to her, prepare to be wowed here. I've been hearing her playing for some time now, though. The uh, fourth track is Exposition. Um, the wildly swinging, big band-sounding orchestra re-enters during a keyboard-length wild piano glissando and then starts a tension-building chugging rhythm, which abruptly stops at the 46-second mark. A mellower section quickly follows with some familiar themes, and we hear the piano and orchestra together for the first time. This is in track four. The section ends with rapid repeated notes and figuration in the piano. Track 5, Orchestra Break, is a quasi-jazzy tension-building section with gradually building harmony. It's brief at 46 seconds. Track 6, Exploration, and the piano has a quickly played entry here, then plays some rapid rhythmic figures with the orchestra. Wang's athleticism is amazing, and by now you're really starting to get a sense of what you're actually hearing. Uh, she's constantly playing at high speed in this piece. In this section, she and the orchestra trade ideas, the orchestra coming up with new rhythmic ideas each time it re-enters. The piano is mostly playing high speed figuration, most of it percussive, requiring a lot of strength from the pianist. It, it's kind of a strength, that, but you have to be relaxed in order to play this rapidly, so it's a pretty amazing uh, performance. A downward octave scale in the piano, very hard to do, I should mention, leads to a tonic chord with a new section in the orchestra, featuring what sounds like an amplified acoustic guitar and some nice traded lines between wind instruments playing ostinato patterns. Abrams has some pretty interesting um, orchestration ideas as well in this piece. Track 7 is Cadenza 2. This sounds Listian and romantic. We've completely left the jazz world now. It's a complete departure from what we've been hearing. Wang gets a solid booming sound from the bass end of the piano. There's lots of quick figuration in the right hand, lots of virtuosic ability on display here, particularly in the speed of the repeated notes in the first minute. We go back further in time just before the second minute as we hear a brief note against note pattern, but the virtuosity gradually comes back in. And we're back to 19th century gestures, mostly building up to a targeted chord. Track 8, Relaxed. This is a break for the listener as well as the performers. It's slower and spacious and gives the listener a chance to slow the adrenaline down. This really is getting me all pumped up listening to this, like I'm listening to a hard rocking uh, electric guitar recording. <laughs> and a minute and four seconds is a light Latin rhythm, a complete surprise. Again, and this, is, this piece is about the plurality of the American people. 
and the piano and orchestra play a song-like set of uh, patterns. It turns into a sunnier movie score-like tune at a minute and 40 seconds or so, amplified in the second minute. Track 9, Solos. Some interesting orchestration is heard here as this theme takes on a 1970s popular tune rhythm and melody. It's immediately appealing. There are brief orchestra solos in the piece as the rhythm continues. Uh, Textural changes are always a bit of a pleasant surprise in this particular track, track 9. Abrams is inventive in his orchestral color contrasts again here. Track 10 is Cadenza 3. The tune from the preceding section vanishes as the piano takes a cadenza with virtuosic figures between the alternating hands. It gets into more romantic figuration. Now, I've heard um, a recording of um, Wang playing um, a version of uh, Flight of the Bumblebee in um, by George Ziffra. It's an arrangement by George Ziffra, and it's all in octaves. It's just crazy, because if you know this piece... It's usually just really quick fingers, but <laughs> Ziffer has it in octaves, and the two thumbs are kind of over each other. It's just really, hmm. it's really crazy. And uh, I've heard Wang play that. And I think this is sort of um, that kind of one hand and then the other hand kind of alternating technique that she uh, seems she's really good at, and she seems to really enjoy doing because I've heard her do this before. There's a slower rhetorical section at the minute and thirty second. Uh, section followed by romantic figuration again and this ends with trills in thirds oh i can never do these it's and they they happen in some easier pieces too but uh no no you gotta spend a lot of time practicing for this track 11 return swing the orchestra comes in playing a repeated chord in the bass with a movie theme sound in the right hand then the opening swing feel is back trading time with a jazz dance figure from the swing era in track 12, Cadenza 4 and Coda, the piano turns the music into a trilling classical style, reminiscent a bit of the end of the piano's final C minor piano sonata, Opus 111. Then a new theme starts, building to a climax. The orchestra takes over, introduces a jazzy rhythm that suddenly turns into a wild jazzy feel. The piano plays lightning arpeggios up the keyboard, and as you'd expect, the work ends with a thrilling buildup interrupted for a final piano appearance that a Gershwin-style Rhapsody in Blue ending. So the composer I was trying to think of at the beginning of this was Charles Valentin Alcan, and there was a very famous recording of Marc-Andre Amlan, the super virtuoso of the day, who is still with us, played this uh, concerto for solo piano. He's recorded it on Hyperion, but that one was on a label called Music and Arts, and uh, we knew there was like some new kind of pianist uh, among us at the time. And uh, Wang is really continuing that tradition and may even be even more electric, at least in this piece. It's a pretty thrilling piece, the Abrams, Piano piano Concerto, and the performance from both Wang and the orchestra is thrilling. This really is a must-hear piece, especially for Americans, and goes to the top of the list of of best-of-the-year recordings as far as I'm concerned. The score itself is full of thrills and toward the end smiles as other less virtuosic material comes in. It may become an American classic if anyone else can play it. This sounds like really hard to play. It's going to be one of those pieces like the Charles Ives like second piano sonata that's only for an elect few. Wang's amazing virtuosity is on full display in certain sections of this work. And also she plays in different styles. There's the jazzy style. Then there's the Franz Liszt kind of romantic style. We, we get all sorts of different genres of music kind of in this whole melon pot of a of a piano concerto. She seems to have the measure of all of these American styles and characterizes them well. And the Louisville Orchestra under Abrams Baton gets the various American qualities necessary for this complexly layered piece. 
Now, I said it's complexly layered, but it's an easy listen and very enjoyable. In fact, it really might get your blood pumping. It's a piece that overwhelms the pleasure centers the first time you hear it. It overwhelmed my pleasure centers, at least. I was all amped up as though I'd uh, heard a hard rocking or swinging album. The Tilson Thomas work is a nice opener full of deeply etched rhythms. People usually don't understand what I mean when I say a classical performance is exciting, but hearing this album, you'll understand what it means. Anyway, must hear. <laughs> there you go. In some ways, it's like, uh, what's the uh, Russian recording we heard a few weeks ago? Oh, God, I don't remember. What, what was it? Uh, you know, the, was it, the Russian guy who writes the American style. Uh, oh, Kapustin. Kapustin. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was a German pianist um, on that one. That was Frank Dupree. <laughs> playing Capustin's music, yeah. Yeah. The music is somewhat like that in nature. There's constant change of style and uh, tempo. So I found it kind of exhausting uh, with that <laughs> It was exhausting. Press I, felt, I thought so too. you got to have the energy to uh, make it all the way through. So you got to be in the right mood. But it is really good fun. Uh, you can pick up the Gershwin inspiration in the final kind of climax, like you said, also in the right, uh, movement yeah. three, the exposition. And what it does is it sort of incorporates a lot of American style beyond the Gershwin era. So you, you get some more modern jazzy things. I really liked the movement eight, the solos one. It's got a funky and bluesy kind of Ramsey Lewis type of uh, right. piano thing yeah. in there as well. And so it has some more modern beats and uh, things there. And then the return and swing, that was kind of fun, almost like a crime theme in there. So it's <laughs> it's uh, virtuosic, but lighthearted in entertainment. Yeah, yeah. It, it's constantly keeps you changing. And it just keeps pressing <laughs> right through to the end. So it's yeah. a giant piece of uh, music that just keeps moving forward. It's got to be exhausting to play. I think it's uh, good fun. It'd be interesting if anyone else will uh, try to make an interpretation of it too and see if it becomes sort of a standard repertoire piece because it does have all these really little nuggets of uh, Americana music in there. I think um, if it does become a, an Americana piece or a famous, like a, on the level of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, it's going to have to be slowed down a bit because it sounds like, geez, it was a, it's a pretty thrilling performance. And yet the uh, the jazz material breathes properly, although it's very, very fast. It does seem kind of, mm. you know, it, it gets the character, let's say. So this worked really well. This is always a thing that makes me a little nervous when there are jazz elements at a classical piece. Are they going to be able to put it across? Because I remember recordings from Europe in the 1980s where they just didn't have the jazz feel at all. <laughs> you know? right, that has right. changed now, though. I mean, um, they they get it as well as anybody else. But sometimes you still hear people speeding through. They don't leave enough space. There's something about the way a swing rhythm has to breathe. It's really a feel you know, that mm -hmm. um, classical musicians, musicians don't spend so much time with. <laughs> so you have to have a good conductor that knows the style, I guess. Anyway, I kind of thought that the next piece we're going to talk about would have sounded a little more like the previous piece, the Abrams piece we just heard. This is uh, Danny Elfman, his violin concerto mm. called 1111. This is paired with Adolphus Hale Stork, another American composer, piano concerto number one. Sandy Cameron is the violinist for the Danny Elfman piece. Stuart Goodyear plays the piano for the Hale Stork. And we uh, hear the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, uh, conducted by Joanne Falletta. This is on the Naxos label. Hmm. This is an album of concertos that the booklet aptly describes as from the American vernacular, sort of as the previous piece by Abrams that we've just heard is. Despite the American connection, these styles contrast 
heavily with each other, <laughs> which is what I'd expect. There's no yeah. real American style of anything. We're we're very much a a set of um, you know, it all kind of comes into this big thing called American, but all the styles are very different of all the different kinds of music we have in the U.S. And if you know Elfman's background, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> unique. Yeah, I'm going to go into and that. Just can't help minute. but be influenced by you know what he's yeah. done before. So yeah. So anyway, let me tell you a little bit about Danny Elfman. I'm sure people might know him from the as the composer of the Simpsons um, theme, <laughs> which is a, kind of a quick changing theme, sort of like you hear in the old uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons. But I think he kind of based it on those. But he's scored a lot of movies and a lot of movies you've yeah. probably seen, as well as um, being the singer-songwriter in the 1980s band Oingo Boingo, who... <laughs> sort of like uh, Devo or these, this really inventive like kind of band at the time. They were kind of involved in what was known as New Wave then. And they were around until the, the mid-90s. And then uh, Elfman went off on his own here. He's written many film scores, including, you ready for this? Jeez, Batman with uh, Tim Burton with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Yep. Edward Scissorhands. Pee-wee's Big mm. Adventure. These are all Tim Burton <laughs> films, by the way. And also Goodwill Hunting, Men in Black. The Nightmare Before Christmas, written by Tim Burton, but not directed by him. And uh, The Simpsons, of course, and many more. Now, he's been venturing into the uh, concert hall a bit, which is nice to see. Because I'd like, you know, when you hear film music, and even film music suites, film music is generally written to sort of accompany a scene or to set a mood. And that's fine, but it usually doesn't have a sense of completeness to it. It's just kind of hmm. this just chunk of music that's just used. So... When you're writing a classical work, you have to be thinking from beginning to end and how everything is going to connect. And I'm kind of glad to be hearing that from him here. This work has its roots in the composer's rock, film, and television background, and I would say especially film and television. Hmm. But it also illustrates his love for the music of Shostakovich and Prokofiev. It's a violin concerto noir that is haunting and compelling. As in his film music, Elfman's material is descriptively melodic. Okay, so we're going to hear a bit of that. But here it's all developed within satisfying structures. That's really the, the difference between film music and a, a concert hall work, is that it has a structure. The work was written for the violinist that we hear on this recording, Sandy Cameron. And the violin in this piece is amplified, though Elfman calls for restraint in balancing the percussion-rich orchestra enabling the soloist to play quiet sections without feeling overexposed. The concerto is called 1111 because it's 1,111 meters long, which is not intentional. It just happened. And it turns out also that Elfman has a preoccupation with the number 11. So this is a weird coincidence. Even in the first part of his name, Elfman, the elf means 11 in German. <laughs> this is actually Cameron's second recording of the concerto, by the way. She made one for Sony in 2019 with the Royal Scottish Symphony Orchestra conducted by John Mosseri. And um, I'm just glad I didn't hear that one, so I'm glad I'm hearing this one, especially since it's accompanied with the Hail Stork. This is a pretty interesting release. The first movement of this four-movement work, very unusual for concerto, they usually have three movements. But the first movement is Grave Animato. I guess this, the first and second movement can be thought of as one gigantic first movement, like with an introduction, because this first movement sounds more like an introduction to the, uh, the second movement. It's long, though, and it starts mysteriously on a string fade-in. The violin plays its first lines tentatively, adding to this mysterious atmosphere. It's kind of a, a movie-like gesture, uh, melodic and a bit forlorn, setting a mood. 
The recording is dynamic with rich bass and good transparency. Always important in a contemporary work. Yeah, we've heard um, three fantastically recorded albums tonight in the classical section of this uh, podcast. At two minutes, the violin starts playing figuration and we're now out of the movie world there are some tricky double stops in there too and in fact um elfman seems to favor the double stop it's a really difficult technique to uh, put across and there are a lot of them in all four movements of this work this is some virtuosic writing early in the movement meanwhile the orchestra is slowly crescendoing but its climax is cut off and the violin plays a solo for a bit in the orchestra strings and percussion come across for most of the time Wind and brass only peaking in occasionally. What I like about Cameron as a soloist is she's not afraid to make a non-beautiful sound. We hear some of that rough aggression in the tone in the fourth minute, and again at the beginning of the fifth as she skips the bow off the strings. An interesting effect is to have, there's a slapstick in the orchestra, and it's panned to the far right in the fifth minute, and I thought that was kind of interesting. It kind of just sounded like it was on the side of the stage. There are tubular bells in the left channel only as well at that point. This is in the fifth minute. One gets a sense of the placing of the orchestral sections well on this recording. The violin into the sixth minute has been playing rapid figuration for about three minutes, which is really impressive. And uh, after some brief chiming percussion, uh, the figuration starts up again. At six minutes and 39 seconds, she gets a more drawn out theme. I love the violin and string section effect at seven minutes and 10 seconds where the violin enters possibly double stop, while the violin section fills out the harmony. It's a great sound and only momentary, making one wonder at what you've just heard. Seven minutes and 10 seconds, listen to that section. At eight minutes, there's a slow double stopped cadenza, which gets up pretty high. The, the driving rhythm in the ninth minute brings it back to a movie feel as the violin plays drawn out notes and some double stopped chords. There's another movie style romantic or rhythmic section, sorry, in the 11th minute giving way to a forlorn lyrical theme in the violin. The movement ends quietly and warmly in the strings. Yeah, Elfman seems to like uh, those chiming percussive sounds a lot because yeah. they're all over this piece. The second movement is labeled spietato, which in Italian means ruthless <laughs> oh. <laughs> or cold-blooded, it could mean too. There's lots of percussion in the opening. The violin comes in with a racing staccato line that's very impressive virtuosically. The violin plays rapidly for long periods of time, showing great stamina, and blends well with the orchestra in this movement, which is written so that the strings will blend in with the violin. There are some great percussion sounds in this, many of them in the chiming variety, and they're often heard decaying after a chord has been let go of, which is a nice effect. There's an appealing ostinato rhythm at the 3 minutes and 15 second mark that the violin glides over with long bowed high notes. Aggressive figuration comes back in the fourth minute, with time marked by a woodblock. Some very impressive figuration from Cameron is heard in the fifth minute. I like the screeching tone in the violin figuration in the sixth minute. It's kind of like a bold gesture. By the eighth minute, there's a rhythmic ostinato pattern in the orchestra that simply evaporates to a new quietly played rhythm as the violin plays long bowed notes. There's an aggressive approach to the end of the movement, which lets off unresolved. Yeah, I guess... The first movement really isn't an introduction to this movement. This is a genuine four-movement concerto. The third movement is labeled again in Italian, Fantasma, which means ghost, as I guess ghostly. It's a slow movement starting in the strings in the middle to upper range. The opening sounds like a long introduction. We don't hear the solo violin until two minutes and ten seconds in, and even then it comes in at its lower range, blending with the orchestra. 
The soloist takes the spotlight just before the third minute, playing mostly melodic lines over the warm string accompaniment of the orchestra. I like the high harmonics in the violin figuration in the fourth minute, and appropriately, otherworldly sound in a movement marked Phantasma. Melting, wavering strings return in the fifth minute. This mostly still, atmospheric movement, full of wavering patterns in the strings, quietens towards the end and ends mysteriously and darkly with a final low chime. The fourth and final movement is labeled Giacoso Lacrime. Now, this is kind of an odd marking. Giacoso, I think he means Giocoso, G-I-O, but I'm not sure. It means playful, and then lacrime means tears. So <laughs> this, hmm. that seems like a contrast. He might mean something else by Giacosa, though. I'm not really sure. The string theme is playful, and there's a... Well, I guess it is Giacosa then. The string theme is playful, and there's a cool bassoon peeking out of the texture, which remains string-heavy. Elfman is very um, adventurous in his scoring. He seems to like the percussion a lot. But I do wish there were less strings and more winds and brass in this. And the strings are fine, but uh, they seem to be leading a lot of the material. Anyway, that's just a, a minor quibble. This is his vision, so I don't want to interfere with that. There are a lot of uh, stop and start rhythms in this movement. The violin play fully goes along, playing long but quick phrases. The bass drum has real presence on the recording. Listen to the second minute. You can tell precisely where it's placed by the balance of the recording. There's a gorgeous violin and percussion chiming section in the second minute as well. In fact, there are a lot of these in this particular work. In fact, twinkling bells, a lot of them in this piece. The playfulness comes crashing down into a dark high waves of the C pattern for the fifth minute. This quietens, then reemerges at mid-volume with rapid violin figuration in the seventh minute. The ending has a real sense of arrival, but before we get to the goal, the driving rhythm drops off, the violin and orchestral strings play lilting lines, and the piece ends in a natural fade. Tracks 5 through 7 are the other concerto on this work, a piano concerto number 1 by Adolphus Hellstork. This was written in 1992. Hellstork was born in 1941, so he's been around for quite a while now, and he's still with us. The concerto draws on Hellstork's African-American heritage. It's a work with energy and high spirits reflecting the rich traditions of jazz and blues, but sounds like neither of them. But we'll get into those elements when we get there. Another American trait, as we heard in the previous concerto, is eclecticism. America is the, uh, or the United States, I should say, is the eclectic nation par excellence. <laughs> and we hear that in this piece too. Hailstar graduated from Howard University and uh, then went to Fontainebleau in France to study with none other than Nadia Boulanger, where um, many of the great uh, composers of the 20th century studied. The first movement, marked moderato, has the piano and strings begin the work with a unison line, sounding a bit like a spiritual melody, meaning from a spiritual. Piano arpeggios are followed by bell-like chords. The theme suddenly changes in the first minute, featuring a more aggressive piano playing octaves, then building tension towards a climax and veering away from it. The rhythm changes often and unexpectedly in this movement, the piano playing figuration that quickly changes with it. It's a pretty passive-aggressive movement, hard to track with words. In the fourth minute, there's an attempt to climb toward a climax that gets thwarted by a sudden veering into quick piano octaves. The movement ends in a quiet, mysterious, natural fade in the strings. I would encourage you to hear this because there's really a lot of uh, material in this that goes by very quickly. The second movement is the slow movement, Adagio. Starts with brass chords, nicely arranged with a clean hunting 
horn sound. The piano plays its gently questioning theme. A warm melody is heard in the strings in the second minute as the piano plays slow arpeggiated phrases. This theme in this section has a dusky quality I associate with the spiritual. The piano figure starts climbing and it rests on a final note. String harmony comes back in. I should mention the recording here, though still transparent, isn't as present as it is in the Elfman Concerto, probably because of the presence of the piano. The uh, microphones would have had to be uh, moved back a bit, I think, because the piano can make a very loud sound. The piano does a crescendo on its line and again ends abruptly in the fifth minute with the strings commenting. At about the 5 minute and 20 second mark, the piano starts rapid figuration for the first time in the movement. He practically has a cadenza here. Things are quieted down by the seventh minute, which features the solo piano playing in its open arpeggiated questioning style. Uh, the strings bring back the dusky melody of the spiritual. We hear this at length until a final ending chord is reached and extended in a long arpeggio by the piano. The movement ends in an unexpected key, suddenly dropping after the arpeggio. Then we get to the third movement, which has a lento um, introduction followed by a vivace main section. This has a warm string line at the beginning and suddenly takes off into rapid, winding, rising figuration in the strings. The piano comes in at 1 minute and 11 seconds to continue the aggressive string line, then falls into accompaniment momentarily. Pretty orchestration with chiming percussion accompanying the piano is heard at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Beautiful smooth scale lines by Goodyear toward the end of the second minute. He's the pianist, Stuart Goodyear. With perfect tonal texture as well. He's an excellent pianist. We're hearing two really excellent soloists on this album that seem to understand the uh, material very well and put it across very well. Uh, quick changes of texture occur, varying from quick figuration to big boned orchestration of the theme. This leads to a flute melody halfway through the fifth minute. In the sixth minute, the piano plays a sparkly melody over an ostinato bass pattern. He stops, warm string harmony comes in and crescendos and builds tension harmonically, heading to a release, heard after some extensions of the material to end the piece on a forte chord. Anyway, first, it's nice to hear Elfman's concert music. I hope we'll hear a lot more of it. The Violin Concerto is pr a pretty long piece in four movements with a lot of ideas. It's all appealing, with contrasting sections juxtaposing each other, aggressive to lyrical or forlorn. Elfman relies heavily on the string section to carry the orchestral material, with winds and brass mostly blending in and percussion playing a big role. Strings also play a big role in the orchestration of Hale Stork's Piano Concerto, setting atmosphere in the more spiritual-oriented sections. This composer is new to me, and I found the work eminently listenable, though it jumps around a lot in the first movement. It's a modest concerto, but an enjoyable one. And in fact, I want to say, with all the attention on Florence Price's music, she's being held up as this, as a, a, a forgotten American composer now. I really have to say, though, I enjoyed this uh, a lot more. I felt like the, uh, I wouldn't call it the blues. They're referring to blues, but I'm thinking of this as like spirituals. And that they're more well integrated into the score. I feel like they belong in the structure really uh, clearly. They integrate really well into the score is what I want to say. The playing does the music justice all around, and it's an enjoyable album of composers with music to discover. And I want to hear some of, uh, I've noticed that Naxos has also released some of Hale Stork's orchestral works, his symphonies. And I'm going to have to check those out, I think. I thought was, this was a pretty interesting piece. Yeah, this was an interesting choice. Yeah. Elfman's uh, orchestral works is my first 
listen to it. You can definitely pick up the cinematic influence yeah. in the tonal choices <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of brooding atmospheres that he creates. They're, they're really interesting, though. And the violin was pretty intense and uh, a lot of different feels going from lush settings to mysterious moods. And uh, I'd be up for listening to uh, more of his works. And uh, hopefully he does some more different instrument kind of uh, concertos or something in the future. It'd be interesting. I was pretty impressed with his grasp of what the violin can do hmm. and then how to offset that with the different orchestral passages. So I found it kind of engaging. The Hailstork I'll have to listen to this again. I, my first listen to this composer, I could pick up on the jazz influences a lot in the first movement. And I thought the piano theme in the adagio was really endearing. And the final movement's got a lot of different moods. And the orchestral textures were interesting. Mm -hmm. So as you said, it would be interesting to hear some of his uh, orchestral pieces as well. And I'd like to get a bigger picture of his sort of style of composition. Yes, me to support your contemporary composers, please, especially this one. He's 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 up there in years now, so you know, hmm. let's let's give him a, a lot more recordings and performances before he's not with us anymore. Hats off to Naxos as always for doing a lot of music that you don't hear on other labels. And well, this week we got Gramophone doing some interesting stuff too. So, gramophone, yeah. Oh, hmm. Glad to hear. Uh, labels going a little bit outside of their usual main type of music and things yes yeah, so, so there there it is the classical section classical composition is alive and well in the united states and i would encourage you all to hear this music all right on to the jazz section and we're going to be sax oriented with all american players and not that i picked it this way but it's all going to center around new york mike yeah just as jazz often does but uh we're gonna have a all American in uh, the biggest kind of way. With, uh, is there a New York accent in jazz? Probably. You know, <laughs> they would say that all jazz has a New York accent. At least players in New York. Would I say. guess. And we're going to start out with uh, saxophonist Wayne Escoffery and his new release, Like Minds, that's on Smoke Sessions Records. Came out April 14th. Well, Escoffery is actually born in London, England, but he emigrated to the U.S. at age 11. So now he's a naturalized citizen. That counts. <laughs> and that's how a lot of our forefathers uh, came to the country. And, well, he studied with the great Jackie McLean at the Hart School, where he got a full scholarship and graduated. And then he attended the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz Performance at the New England Conservatory in Boston. He also did some touring with Herbie Hancock. And I came to know him with the seven albums he recorded with Tom Harrell as a sideman, and I've been paying attention to his playing ever since then. But here, this is his 11th recording as a leader that uh, goes back to his first release in 2001. And his previous release, also on Smoke Sessions, was called The Humble Warrior from 2020. And we heard him on the podcast, let's see, that goes back to episode 85 with uh, pianist Amina Figueroa's uh, Joy and Meditations. And he was really burning up on that mm. record. I remember being impressed by his solos. So I'm always 
interested to hear what he's got coming out next. And this is a pretty exciting recording here. I was also drawn to it because one of our favorite pianists is on here, Dave Kikoski, yeah. who's also on the roads here. He's got Ogono Epkegwa on bass, who often was a sideman together with him on the Tom Harrell recordings. We've got Mark Whitfield Jr. on drums, Mike Moreno on guitar, who's used in a very interesting way on the compositions, and Tom Harrell himself shows up as a guest on trumpet and a nice surprise gregory porter's golden voice right on uh, two tracks guest on a couple of tracks too so a lot of uh promising ingredients there and we're going to get a nice mix of escuffery originals and some interesting other choices but we're going to start with an original tune called like minds which is the title track and this one comes out with a thick sounding melody because Escoffrey and Moreno are working in unison on it. We're going to hear that over this album. Uh, the melody itself is kind of angular, starting high, and having some cool weaves in the line. It's really dense as well because there's a lot of movement with a bass and left hand piano counterline that's undulating under the mm -hmm. melody. A lot to listen to. And that's all over the busy drumming of Whitfield. The tune itself is a 32 measure AABA form, and the B section contrasts is a bit more subdued with an extra measure before the final A section and creates a little tension there. And Escoffery solos first here, sounding energetic and muscular over the quickly changing modal harmonies in the tune. Kikoski's up on roads here and the phasey effect goes between left and right channels, uh, making a big wash of sound <laughs> uh, in your speakers or your head. Yeah. Uh, Moreno solos next. He's fluid, but snappy at the same time. He's got a really neat reverb sound on this recording that makes kind of a spacey atmosphere. Whitfield's got a lot of drum and cymbal spontaneity going on under the solos. The drums sound a bit compressed sometimes, especially on this tune in the mix, but I think they may have needed to do that because he's doing some really hard hitting. Yeah, I mentioned that too, that I noticed that in the sound. That's unusual for smoke sections, really. They're usually yeah. uh, really hard hitting and like, you know, I was kind of wondering mm. about that. I also wanted to mention on this piece, like mine's the, uh, just the whole opening Saxon electric guitar coming in. It's such an ear grabbing yeah, sort of it's a great combination sound. of timbers, you know, really grabbed yeah, my ear really right well. away. Uh, on this tune, Kikoski also gets a road solo. It's really rhythmic, cool percussive two-hand figures that are really locked into the groove that's going on. Then they go around the melody again with some final phrase repeats, and there's some pulsing roads sounds to finish it up. So high energy start. Track two is a Mingus tune. goes all the way back to 1959. Nostalgia in Times Square. But uh, it's kind of got a modern feel to it with a funky rock beat start from Whitfield. Check out the cool kind of closing hi-hat work. Uh, really nice uh, technique there. After four bars, bass and keyboards are in with Kokoski still on Rhodes on this tune. And Tom Harrell joins in on this one and he works the melody in unison with the scoffery. The arrangement is pretty cool with drums dropping out in spots for the horns to float a bit. And then the horns split into harmony at the end of the melody. Kokoski solos first. He makes it funky with lots of ringing and some fun trills there too. Uh, they keep the letting up of the drum idea in the solos, which makes a good contrast and builds up the tension. Harrow solos next, and they change up to a kind of staccato syncopated bass and piano chord backing uh, with light hi-hat underneath. And Harrow always tells a story when he plays a solo, and here he's got great phrasing and articulation, connecting lines of building ideas and really tantalizing spaces between his phrases. 
Scoffrey follows with thick-toned legato ideas, sounding smooth and pushing some cool harmonic tension with a choice note near the end. Back through the melody and some stretching out for exchanges between the horns and funky support from Kakowski, who gets the final word with Tasty Roads as it fades out. Man, a lot of all-stars on this record. It's really yeah. some good players. <laughs> <Great Jeez>. players. <laughs> another Escoffrey original for track three, Sincerely Yours. And there's another tune with Moreno's guitar working the melody together with Escoffrey. The opening section is 24 measures with syncopated guitar and sax lines and drum fills from Whitfield. And then it breaks into a more charging swing feel for 32-bar boppy melody, which sounds like Two rounds of 16 bars, really nice unison agility in the sax and guitar with cool little triplet figures in the melody. Scoffrey solos first with a lot of energy in forward pushing snappy lines that turn into speedier phrases. Kakowski's on acoustic piano here and he had some nice percussive chords cheering on Escoffrey's solo. There's a 16 measure transition section before Moreno's solo and it's the opening section we heard at the beginning of the song from the ninth measure on. So I guess the first eight measures of the tune is like an intro. The Moreno makes smooth melodic lines with a lot of rhythmic variety in his phrases. There's another transition section before Kikoski gets a solo. Really nice exploration of the harmonies with the upper register lines and some cool explosive chords. He's always exciting. And Whitfield gets some energetic drum solo time broken up with the rising sax and guitar lines of the transition section. Once more through the 32-measure swinging melody, and then through the 8-measure intro and the 16-measure section. So it's like a mirror of the structure at the beginning, uh, which is cool. And there's some furious fills from Whitfield as they finish it out. All right, enter Gregory Porter for track 4. Mm. So Escoffery original called My Truth. Kakowski starts it out solo on piano with an 8-measure intro. It's slow rhythmic kind of minor figures with a little dissonance to resolve in the piano chords. Drums and bass at a slow groove, and Escoffrey comes in with a relaxed and sassy sax line for a section before Porter joins in with the vocals, uh, resonating with that great deep baritone voice in minor blues phrases with the lyrics explaining what his truth is. Escoffrey weaves sax lines around him. It's slow and sparse in arrangement, fitting the mood really nicely. Kakowski paints thick but understated background chords behind the vocals. And Tom Harrell joins in for an extended solo after Porter finishes his vocal lines. Really tasty note choices, some half valve notes, and a nice mix of bluesy and then more harmonically adventurous lines. Porter returns with more truthful vocal lines with some soft assist from Escoffrey to the end. It's a really moody and subtle tune. Yeah, and Porter kind of stretches out a bit here. We don't hear his usual just, you know, mellifluous, the beautiful voice. Like he really does mm. color it a bit, and which is nice to hear. Right. But, you know, it's kind of just, it's an interesting choice for an album like this. Maybe he's trying something new out. Yeah, and an interesting choice of tune for track five. Keeping Gregory Porter on Rivers of Babylon, which is kind of a Rastafari song <laughs> that was uh, recorded by Brent Dow and Trevor McNaughton of the Jamaican reggae group, the Melodians, all the way back to 1970. I guess the lyrics are kind of adapted from uh, Psalms 19 and 137. So kind of soaring and rubato intro with Porter and Escoffrey working together over dreamy waves of piano from Kikoski and Whitfield's cymbals. There's no reggae beat here, but it's uh, 
pretty cool slow groove they get going with Okeguo and Kikoski working some syncopation together. Whitfield's tight hi-hat uh, also, and it sounds like some light conga uh, mixed in with the percussion as well. Porter sounds rich with nice phrasing on the melody, getting that little burr in his voice, uh, adding some tension just in the right spots. And Escoffery adds tasty answering phrases and Whitfield's subtle cymbal work and drum fills. Escoffery takes a smooth and very melodic solo, and Porter and Escoffery work together nicely all the way to the end, with Porter handling some subtle pitch play on a lot of the phrases at the end. Yeah, nice tune and nice arrangement. Then we're going to get a tune penned by a jazz drummer Ralph Peterson called Song of Serenity. It's an eight-bar intro, setting the mood with funky syncopated piano chords and bass. Escoffrey comes in on the melody, soprano sax on this tune, and a real clicky kind of beat from Whitfield. Really fine acoustic piano solo from Kikoski here, keeping the funky left-hand chords going while his right hand gets into some really flowing and smooth melodic lines with some fun tumbling figures on the way. Escoffrey's got a soprano solo with energetic lines, subtle pitch manipulations, and real fluidity. It's a really kind of centered soprano sound. It's kind of unique. And he works that solo all the way back to the melody, but keeps it bursting with improvised ideas right to the end. Track 7's another Escoffrey original, Treasure Lane, back on tenor here, and Kikoski's back on the roads. And I couldn't pick out the structure of this melody. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of flowing. It seems to be around 32 or more measures. It seems to be different uh, when I hear it, when the melody comes back. Uh, there's two halves that kind of start with the same phrase, but go in a little bit of a different harmonic direction. And it unfurls over a constantly changing rhythmic feel of Akiko's bass pulse and Kikoski's rhythmic chords. Sometimes it actually gets into a little samba feel in rhythm for a couple measures. And Escoffery continues on through a fluid solo and a really exciting road solo from Kikoski too, uh, with dizzying runs and cool little ornaments over the minor chord section of the progression. Track 8 is a tune from Duke Pearson, and it's called Idle Moments. This is uh, from a 1963 Grant Green album named Idle Moments, and uh, Pearson was a pianist on this recording. If you know that tune, they give it a feel. It's rather like the original, but it's a little bit slower. Now, Kegwa's ringing bass alternates with the separated kind of melody notes from Escoffery and Kikoski. Uh, Moreno has some ghostly ringing sounds on the guitar before joining in with Escoffery. And check out that tremolo sound. <laughs> it's really uh, kind of fun. The, the, the sad, lonesome American sound. <laughs> yeah. It's minor and bluesy with tasty fills from Kikoski in the gaps. A reserved, subtle, and bluesy solo from Escoffery here. Moreno has a tasty solo too with pearly reverby tones and a killer little lick that gets moved around the registers uh, quickly on the guitar. Another relaxed run of the melody to finish it out. Uh, Nice subtle cymbal work and fills from Whitfield throughout this tune. And we're going to finish up with an Escoffrey original shuffle, but it's not really a shuffling rhythm here, but it's a great bass groove from Okeguo, who gets it going in the eight-bar intro with a nice bounce. Uh, The melody is minor and bluesy, with a lot of cool interval lines worked together by Escoffrey and Moreno to get that nice guitar sax mix. It's a 28-measure melody with big changes in the ninth and 21st measures. Uh, They go around twice, and Escoffrey launches first into a fiery solo with some angsty and edgy tone in some crying high register licks, uh, some gruff puffs and smooth searching lines with digs into the lower register too. 
Moreno follows with tasty bends, rhythmic lines, bluesy little licks, and then speedy lines, and a really cool climax on this solo. Kakoski has a lot of rhythmic excitement in his piano solo as well, and they wrap it up with another run through that unique melody. So that wraps it up. It's a challenging group of original compositions, an interesting mix of other tunes, really nice instrumentation with that guitar and sax lead melody usage. Uh, working the leads together on those instruments gives it a unique feel. Tom Harrow has some great solo spots. You get the golden voice of Gregory Porter, adding a nice vocal infusion in the middle of the recording. And Escoffrey's tenor playing is matured and confident, always inventive, with exciting solos and one nice soprano sax tune on here as well. Whitfield and Okegwo keep the grooves fresh and varied, and Kakoski backs enthusiastically and adds his own exciting solos. A challenging and rewarding listen of fresh jazz. You know, when I heard this, I didn't know it was uh, David Kikoski because I heard on the piano, because I just listened to it on the uh, on the streaming, and one of the first notes I wrote is, oh, this piano playing is very inventive. And then he said it's David Kikoski. I said, well, well it figures, you know. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that, I think, the most. I always like his playing a lot. This is a really sophisticated record. It's um, it's an enjoyable listen, but it's it's gonna it's gonna kind of make your brain work a little bit. I really mm. always appreciate that in music. Smoke Session seems to have that sort of you know it's traditional, but there's a little bit more to it. There's a lot of sophistication in in the mm. music that they seem to the artists they seem to sign. I liked um you know the Fender Rhodes and Piano by um, Kikoski. There's some impressive soloing also by Tom Harrell, of course. And uh, from uh, Escaferi himself. I, w- I wasn't too happy about the way the drums were recorded. The drumming is really fantastic. He's hitting hard, but I would have liked that to come out of the speakers and really impacted my solar plexus. Mm. But, you know, this is what we got. It's good. I mean, it, it sounds good. And uh, this is a record I'm going to want to hear again, I think, because um, I just found the soloing interesting. And I don't really feel like I absorbed everything that was on it. Yeah, good compositions. So take a while to... Uh... That's, them all that's out always a good sign when you go. want to hear the record yeah. again because you didn't get it all because right. there's real content in there. You know? mm. All right, another sax recording and Chris Byers with Look Ahead on Steeplechase. And this came out April 21st. Now, Byers, uh, same age as me, born 1970 in New York City. No. To musical parents, check this out. His mother was a first clarinet in the American Symphony Orchestra, and uh, his father, uh, oboe and English horn in New York City Ballet Orchestra. So that's a musical family. Mm -hmm. But Byers himself changed over to jazz in his teenage years after an early career as an opera singer. Wow. (laughs) During which he performed uh, productions for the New York City Opera and the Metropolitan Opera, including a lot of high-pressure solo roles in the title role for the made-for-television production of The Spellbound Child by ballet master and choreographer uh, George Blanchine. I just want to say, I, I once went out with the uh, the choral singers of the Metropolitan Opera, and you think, oh, they're not soloists, so they're just good. But no, we went to some bar, and they sang solos. It was just unbelievable, like, the, just the range these people had. Um, so mm. if you're if you're up on the Metropolitan Opera stage, even, at, even as, you know, especially when he was a child, it wasn't that long ago, boy, you had to be really good. And he was in the... Uh, 1982 PBS's Great Performance series. So a big switch over to the saxophone uh, at the age of uh, 
13 or so, I guess. And then he went on to get a bachelor's of music and a master's of music in jazz studies and performance from Manhattan School of Music. And he's been a musical instructor for the new school, also jazz at Lincoln Center, New York City Board of Education. And as a cultural envoy for the U.S. Department of State, he's performed educational outreach for school audiences in 58 countries around the world. And this is, I believe, his 17th album as a leader. And he's here on tenor saxophone with all original compositions. And we're also treated to one of our favorite guitarists, Pasquale Grasso, yeah. on this recording. We've got some of his other common compatriots here. Ari Rowland on bass, a Juilliard-trained bassist. And we've got Keith Bala, a drummer from Austin, Texas. And we're going to jump right in with the first original composition, Times Square Lights. And we're in a swinging mood right away here. Uh, the trio gives an eight measure intro led with Grasso's guitar and a little drum break. It's a 32 measure, kind of two halves of 16 measure melody that start off the same. And you get a sense of Byers' relatively light tenor tone on the legato start of the phrases with nice interplay and answering phrases from Grasso. Avalos, Clear cymbals mark out the swing over a chugging walk from Roland. The buyer solos first, relaxed and melodic, and a great sense of swing. I'm reminded of the soft energy of Stan Getz's tenor sound. It's light in the upper register, but has a nice bloom in the lower range. And he has that similar unforced flowing execution on this tune and all through the album. Grasso solos next. He's fluid with nice line connection and some playful rhythmic ideas. A few nicely placed double stops. Roland takes the first of many bowed bass solos you're <laughs> going to hear on this recording. It's a little bit distant in the mix, but he keeps it really swinging and melodic with an airiness to the bowed tone. Byers trades fours for a round with Bala on drums, who keeps it restrained with understated tasty hits around the kit and once more around the melody to close it out uh, with a nice touch of a final sax tag before the last chord. Yeah, in fact, all of the bass player solos are bowed on this record. Right? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's got a lot of them, one, too. Yeah. It's a very yeah. generous uh, allotment of solos to the bass player. Yeah. Mm. Track two is called Melatonin. Hmm. Like I, with an apostrophe, with, uh, yeah, at the apostrophe. end. So it's like melatoning, you know. I guess, like yeah. The, the melatonin, yeah. Chilling out, melatonin. There. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's an easy mm -hmm. medium swing feel on this tune, and Byers and everyone come right in with an eight-bar intro section into the tune, which is a 32-measure AABA construction. It has nice tumbling sax figures in the second half of the A section. Grosso solos first here, melodic and fluid, and he's a lot more chilled out than a few years ago <laughs> when we first heard him. And every solo was just exploding yeah. with notes. He really he's has got that mellowed a bit. Technique. I think he yeah. listened to the adult music podcast and took our advice. Could be. Could be. Yeah, because when we first heard him with uh, Samata Joy, yeah. remember he, he was like uh, playing all over the place on that first on the first track album. on that al first album. But then we heard him like earlier on his own album, and he was he's also played all over the place, but it was yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got monstrous technique. Yeah. And Byers is next then, uh, relaxed and fluid too. Check out the cool slurry line that he uses going into his uh, second chorus of the solo here. I really like that. Uh, another bowed solo from Roland. And then everyone trades fours with uh, Bala for some drum solo spots. Take it around the melody again, ending in a breezy higher note from Byers. 
Track three is the title track, Look Ahead. This one has a cool Latin feel, eight bar intro with some fun syncopated sax figures over a clicky drum beat. The melody gets more of a driving swing in an A-B-A-B construction. Sax and guitar work together on the A section, kind of swinging licks, and then the sax gets a little series of rising lines on the B section. Uh, Bayer solos first, Grasso keeps the soft rhythmic chord backing, and Bayer is really good at soft snare fills and light cymbal work that's very subtle on this tune. Uh, Grasso solos with more bubbling lines to the slightly faster tempo on this tune compared to the previous one. Another bowed solo from Roland here with quiet agility. Mbala takes a full drum solo on this tune and he does a lot with a little bit of uh, action. He's very tasty, focusing on perfectly timed hits and tight little figures. Track four is Endure and Remain. This one's a ballad. It's a 32 measure AABA melody. It starts minor, but it turns brighter in the second half of the A section and also for the B section as well. Agrasso has some tasty arpeggiated kind of strums underneath on the minor chords and really tasty fills through the sax melody. Breezy and effortless phrasing from Byers, who goes right into a solo round with soft fluttering. A melodic solo that balances some low register fluffiness with higher reaches. Uh, Byers keeps on through the whole tune, connecting back to the melody with a little slowdown and a minimalist ending. It's very pretty. Track five, Bop Themology. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> That's like another a, good title. A, a tune like uh, Gaz Hughes was yeah. <laughs> using for every one of his albums as a bop. Uh, title. Hmm. Uh, what did he have? Boptometry or something. For oh. I guess he got to run out of uh, bop <laughs> kind of uh, derived names after a while. This one's got an eight measure drum intro from Bada with some crackling snare drum in it. It's an AABA boppy melody, but quite relaxed in phrasing with nice integrated syncopation from Grasso on Byers' melody lines. The unique twist here is that the final A section is and extended 12 measures. Uh, smooth and melodic solos all around from Byers and then Grasso, who sparkles at this tempo with bubbling melodies. He has some fun repeated note rhythmic guitar ideas in there as well. And Roland has a speedier abode solo for this one, still keeping things melodic. Everyone trades fours with Bile on round before another boppy melody run and a final flurry of drums. Track six, Little Quito. And this is a cute one, mm -hmm. indeed. Uh, there's an eight-measure intro with rhythmic soft staccato sax figures over a Latin rhythm. The melody's in AABA form with two measures of Latin feel that changes to swing from the third measure in the A section. And the B section is contrasting Latin feel with uh, nice drum rim clicks. And the final A section also gets extended to 12 measures into a break for Grasso to burst into a solo with a lot of speedy licks. They keep things in a swinging groove through the solos. Byers follows Grasso with a fluttery melodic solo. And Roland has another bowed solo here too. And another round of the melody with that Latin change-ups and an outro to match the intro of the tune. Track seven is called 3D Flat. And another light, boppy, and swinging AABA tune with a lifting B section. Nice syncopated hesitations in the sax melody line with shadowing from Grasso and tasty drum fills and accents from Bala through the melody. Roland's bowed bass is up first for a solo on this one. And Byers is next with a lot of effortless double-time phrases in this one. And again, I'm thinking that kind of Stan Getz kind of... Uh, 
effortless phrasing here. Grasso has a nice mix of double time ideas in his solo here too. Another run through the melody with a little changed ending and a final drum roll to finish it up. And Grasso is surprisingly spacious on this track. He released yeah, a lot of space. Yeah. Yeah. Track eight, four for Plov, P-L-O-V. An eight bar drum intro pushing things forward in feel. Uh, it's a speedy boppy 32 measure melody with chains of figures that build higher over the first 16 measures. Uh, then they return to the original start for the next eight with a final set of kind of rising riffs that are different in the ending section. Byers is out of the break for a fluid boppy solo. Nice melodic ideas, even with speedy lines. Grasso has some cool tricky rhythmic ideas mixed in here with some final harmonic fun uh, before Roland gets to a speedy bowed solo on this one. Mbala gets a full drum solo here as well, getting a bit more animated on this one, but still with tasty restraint. And they close it out with another run through the melody. Track nine's Blessings for Giacomo. Hmm. A waltzing ballad for this one. Bass and guitar get the three-beat feel set up with a four-measure intro. And Byers takes the 32-measure melody and continues on into a really delicate solo. Nice phrasing, spaces between lines and fluttery triplet figures. It's all sax here, connecting right through back to the melody with more embellishments and final tasty sax phrases. And track 10, This Account is Private. <laughs> not, not a title you would have heard uh, 10 years <laughs> yeah. ago or 20 years ago. <laughs> Bala gets us started with an eight-bar drum intro. Tight and intense cymbals let you know things are going to be speedy. And a little bit different structure here with a 16-measure super-fast boppy melody handled with dexterity in unison by Byers and Grasso. We hear that twice, then an eight-measure bridge section before one more 16-measure melody section. Solos of speedy melodic lines all around here from Byers Grasso, who ends up with some super-fast interval ideas on the guitar, and then Roland's bowed bass. All three take rounds of trading eights with Bala on the drums before another speedy melody run and a little tag ending with some drum flourish. So this album is called Look Ahead, but in many ways it's a glance back mm. to great bebop uh, with cool jazz sentiments in there as well. Byers has penned all originals with melodies that become familiar right away, and they could have come out of the 1950s or any time after that. There's an understated spaciousness to the recording that lets you hear everything clearly. Byers' sax playing is never strained. He's got a great tenor tone, always sounding effortless, even on fast boppy material. And Grasso fits in perfectly here with complimentary backing and enough lightning speed solos to satisfy his fans. Bob is a really tasty drummer who doesn't overpower the mix and keeps things tight with tasty solos, uh, working well with Barron's tight walking patterns on bass and a whole recording of both bass solos uh, here. Mm. Uh, it's a real treat for all fans of traditional bop and post-bop jazz styles. Yeah, it's a fairly quiet and intimate album. You met, you said understated, and that's a word I used too. This, that's a good word to describe this album. Mm. Uh, another one is classy. All of these, uh, all the playing on yeah. this record has like really nice class to it. Everybody takes a quiet tone in their lead instruments, which is kind of a nice. It gave the album a really nice, intimate feel, as I said. Yeah. Um, everything is caught clearly on the recording. The recording is ideal for this type of understated jazz, except for the bass, as we mentioned, who's really too far away from the mic when he solos. I think the quiet presence of the accompanying bass lines is what the recording was going for. It's kind of like a sort of ghostly mm -hmm. background sort of feel. But once he steps out, they, they needed to turn that uh, meter up so we could hear him a little better. He's audible. Though. I'm wondering yeah. 
you know, they may have something to do with the way they recorded it. Yeah. It could have been recorded in a more kind of live, yeah. okay, interfaced space, and they just went with whatever natural volume levels uh, came out from that setup. I think when he's like laying down the bass line when everybody else is playing, they wanted to su like suggest his presence. I've heard recordings like that before. And that's mm. fine. I like it enough. Yeah. Having having played the electric bass, I really like when the bass is right up front, like in The Police or something like that, when Sting <laughs> plays or something. Right. Okay. I really like Pasquale Grasso's, of course, very understated play on this album. Really unusual for him. Or maybe not. Maybe this is what he's playing like now because uh, we remember him from two years ago where he was like really just this monstrous technique that you were hearing on every track. You're still hearing some really neat and, uh, you know, inventive ideas and... Uh, the fact that he is a really great player, but I like the way he kind of like, well, was very understated here, I guess. Yeah, you know, I liked his sound too, like this kind of quiet, intimate, and really focused, um, precise sound. So, yeah, Byers playing is smooth, like you said, and he made me think of Stan Getz as well, because there's a slight mm. breathy quality to his attack, and I like that a lot. Yeah, I just um, like the whole relaxed approach to even yeah. the up-tempo tracks. This was highly appealing. And I was actually looking for this uh, CD on Amazon, and they, they want some ridiculously high price for it. I don't know. I'm going to have to uh, sell some of my clothes <laughs> to, to get this one. It'll come down. Maybe. Um, it's not out yet. Steeplechase so, yeah. is usually a pretty reasonably priced okay. uh, label. So. <laughs> yeah, I just like the kind of overall maturity of the atmosphere yeah. on this recording and the effortlessness of it. Um, yeah. It's just a really classy sound here. All right, in the last recording, we've got a uh, kind of newcomer with a debut recording here on Cellar Live, and that's Nick Green with Green on the Scene. And this came out also on April 21st. So Green's uh, born and raised in Brooklyn. Yeah, Mike, like me. I was born in Brooklyn from too. From a family of hardworking immigrants, his father got him his first sax at the age of eight, when he saw it in the window of an old music shop. And uh, Nick attended the Frank Sinatra School of the Arts, founded <laughs> by Tony Bennett. Oh, and cool. He spent four years in the jazz band there. You, you would think if Tony Bennett founded it, he would call it the Tony Bennett School of the Arts. But <laughs> well, you know. go figure. I don't know what the story was with that. So early on, he was influenced by the great old-time sax players, Lester Young, Charlie Parker. And at age 17, he met one of his idols of the alto sax, the great bebop player, Charles McPherson. And that's going to become evident mm -hmm. on this recording. I got a couple of tunes by him. In 2014, he got into the SUNY Purchase College's Conservatory of Music, stuttering under Gary Smullyan, the great Barry sax player, right. and he got a bachelor's degree in music performance as well as a master's degree after spending six years there. And he's played all around New York at uh, Blue Note, Dizzy's Club, Coca-Cola Jazz at Lincoln Center, Smalls Jazz Club, Mesro, Ornithology Jazz Club, lots of places, and performed with, uh, just to pick a few names, Charles McPherson himself, John Faddis, Gary Bartz, Steve Davis, Marvin Stamm. Pasquale Grasso, Bruce Barth, Joe Lovano. So he's already got a wealth of experience. As I said, this is his debut recording here on Cellar Live. And so Nick Green's on alto sax. We've got Joe Magnarelli on trumpet, a great New York uh, bebop trumpet player. Jeb Patton on piano. Mike Karn on bass. And the well-known Kenny Washington on drums. And this recording was done at Van Gelder Recording Studios over in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. New Jersey. So you can't one of the finest. pick a place with uh, 
more jazz history than that. Right. All right, we're going to start right out with a Charlie Parker tune, Red Cross, which is uh, a rhythm changes tune. Mm. We also heard an interesting version of this from uh, Rudreshma on top right. on his uh, Hero Trio recording. And they take this at a brisk tempo, actually faster than Charlie Parker's recording. I found it invigorating. <laughs> yeah. Kenny Washington gets it going with an eight-bar drum intro, and then Green and Magnarelli who's got a harmon mute in the trumpet for this one, take the unison melody licks over stop time, uh, hand it off to Patton for piano on the B section. And Green's out of the break for the first solo, and we get a first taste of his playing. A nice, slightly breathy tone on alto, not too tart of a sound, kind of well-rounded. And he's taken all of his bebop vitamins, good accented bebop phrasing, melodic ideas that build up for a well-constructed solo at this really high speed. Uh, Magnarelli's got a speedy melodic solo starting out from some nifty rhythmic licks, nice flexibility, and he gets all the charm out of that kind of compressed harmon mute effect in there. Patton's got a bouncy solo with some snappy rhythms and some impressive two-handed lines, and the horns trade eights with Washington for some drum solo spots, Magnarelli ditching the mute for that, but then sticking it back in for the final melody run. And Green takes the B section just on sax this time instead of piano for some final flurries and it's a speedy high energy start to the recording hey where can i get uh bebop vitamins <laughs> i don't I know i think i want to try you want some? if it's going to sound anything like this track which i really love i thought this was great i want my yeah, personality really to be like this track <laughs> well track two is going to be uh, an original from green cheating and it comes in with a pressing drum roll into a 12 bar blues tune with a medium swinging groove. And the Patton and the rhythm section take a round of the chorus. And Green's original melody here for the horns is in unison until a final split off at the end. Bluesy with cute little falling figures in the phrases. And they take it around twice as customary. Patton's up first on a piano solo. Uh, he builds off simple right hand phrases. Nice hesitation, getting into more kind of boppy lips. Magnarelli starts his solo with some rhythmic interval ideas and gets some bluesy tastes before some more explorative double time ideas. A nice major scale kind of happy licks in there as well. Green builds a nice alto solo as well. Some harmonic tension in his lines resolve nicely. And I like his final phrase of relaxed eighth notes. Karn has a bass solo too on this one and he keeps it melodic with a mix of snappy rhythms. A couple more runs around the melody with some final phrase repeats and a nice sax line to finish it up. Then we'll get a Charles McPherson tune for number three, Horizons. It's got an eight measure intro with anticipation building horn lines over bouncy syncopated bass and piano figures and a drum break. It's a boppy melody handled with nice dexterity in unison and then harmony parts on the horns. Uh, there are rhythmic change ups to a Latin feel and a rhythm section dropout in the first 16 measure section. The next 16 measure section has different horn lines and then an eight measure bridge with a Latin feel and then we hear the first section again. Uh, nice solos here are all around from Green, taking some chances with ideas and phrasing uh, that he ties together nicely. Uh, also, Magnarelli's got some interesting phrasing starts and stops and nice rhythmic licks in his solo on this tune. Patton's got a piano solo with a mix of boppy lines and rhythmic figures that he integrates well into the overall kind of arc of his solo. And another run through the melody and a vamping outro with some extra room for some horn fun as it fades out. Uh, track four, this one surprised me, A Handful of Stars. It's a 
kind of an old-time ballad that we don't hear too often. It goes back to 1940, uh, Glenn Miller tunes, written by Jack Lawrence and Ted Shapiro. It's got a really pretty pretty title, too. I'm kinda, yeah. yeah. I think it's an attractive song, too. I think I got a recording of this by Stan Getz, and I think, uh, let's see... Diana Washington maybe did a version, and Toots Thielens, a harmonica player, I think recorded this as well. Uh, Green takes the melody solo here with nice phrasing, little bends, and just a slight vibrato for style. Uh, he's got a full alto tone with just a bit of breathiness. Uh, there's a little bit of rasp in the tone here. <laughs> it really comes through on the recording, uh, I noticed. Uh, but that goes away when he gets into the upper register where his tone is really nice as well. He continues right on soloing, a good relaxed feel even when pulling off snappy double time phrases. And Patton gets an interlude solo here as well. Nice clean middle register phrases, finishing up with some classy two-handed synced up lines on the piano. And Green's back on the B section of the melody into the final A with some nice holds for soft sax figures to a robust finish. Uh, Jerome Kern standard. The song is You, an energetic fast swing take on this one. Uh, Green takes the A section of the melody with some syncopated change-ups underneath in the rhythm section. Uh, great bass chug from Karn here. Uh, Magnarelli takes the B part on Harmon muted trumpet with fine accents, and there's a Latin rhythm switch on the second half of the section. Green is out first with a topsy-turvy solo break for another good boppy solo, taking more chances and spots. Magnarelli ditches the mute for a snappy solo with some perky articulation mixed in, and a really tense harmonic choice of a note uh, in there, but he resolves that uh, nicely on the way. He's a really good bop player. Patton has an energetic piano solo too, connecting a lot of busy lines. It's another melody run with Magnarelli having some rhythmic fun licks on the B section and staying on for some backing lines under the sax to finish it up. Track six, another favorite of Charlie Parker, All the Things You Are, Jerome Kern's tune, uh, goes back to uh, Very Warm for May. Hmm. Uh, 1939. Uh, they ditched the often heard intro for this one with Green coming right in without even the melody, just improvising <laughs> right away at a medium swing clip. Uh, he stretches out a bit with some less boppy and more slow and lyrical lines. Magnarelli contrasts with a busier and boppier solo, still with nice melodic connection, and Patton has a relaxed piano solo. Karn gets a bass solo too, with some final double stop notes, but they finish it up with the melody, starting out with Magnarelli, who hands it off to Green, ah, and then that ominous outro phrase that we sometimes hear on the intro too, so uh, they give you what you missed at the beginning to finish it off. Track 7, I saw this on the listing, You Crane, Y-O-U hyphen K-R-A-I-N-E, it's a song for Ukraine, and I was expecting a ballad, but <laughs> no, too. it's a bopper, <laughs> <laughs> with an A-A-B-A tune, harmonized horns, a little Latin change up on the A section, some cool horn and drum exchanges on the B section, and an extra four measures on the final A section that gets into a solo break for Magnarelli, uh, but it's straight eight measures for that section in the solos. Trumpet sax and piano solos, and then some new horn lines to exchange with drum soloing from Washington, who builds up the tension back into another run through the melody. Uh, wait for the surprise final chord when you think the tune is over. It's not. I actually sent this track to uh, two Ukrainian students that I met here, so I'm wondering. Oh. They haven't responded yet. I'm just kind of wondering what they thought about it. They're bopping away. Yeah, maybe. There. Yeah. They're both into jazz, so I kind of thought maybe they'd like they'd cool. appreciate the gesture anyway, at least. 
another Charles McPherson tune for track eight, A Tear and a Smile. It's got a rubato intro of Green's sax melody over Patton's pretty piano. It bursts into a medium waltz with a clicky beat and a nice interplay of horn lines between the sax and trumpet. Uh, Green has an inspired solo here with soaring lines, rhythmic licks, and swirling phrases. And Magnarelli sounds really warm and fluffy here. I wonder if he switched to flugelhorn. Uh, it's got some smooth, relaxed phrases between his otherwise snappy licks. Patton's got an enthusiastic solo with ringing ideas into big chords while keeping up the left-hand rhythmic drive. It slows down over the piano to a kind of rolling piano climax uh, before a reset back to the waltzing feel for the melody, and Greg gets some holds at the end to make a satisfying finish over. And track nine, uh, the last track, another green original, Barry. And it's a slow intro with a harmonized horn line over cymbal textures and ringing piano. Suddenly, it's in a Latin mood with a fun yeah. rumba feel to it. Uh, happy horn lines with nice interplay, and it's an unusual 21-measure-length melody that ends up in syncopated horn figures. They go around that twice. The field changes up to a medium swing for the solos, and Green goes first with fluid phrases. Magnarelli follows some cool interval ideas. Nice double-time licks in his trumpet solo here. Patton and Karn get rounds too, ending in a little bass groove. Back to the Latin feel for a couple more rounds of the melody with a little extended and slowed down ending section. And that's it. So Green's on the scene, and that's one with a bebop bedrock for its foundation. Uh, he's paying tribute to his alto heroes here, a Charlie Parker original and other standards favored by him. Two Charles McPherson tunes as well. He's got an original blues and then the Ukraine original boppy tune, plus the unique Barry all from his own pen. Accomplished bebop sax solos with a pleasing sound. Great players in company here for his debut recording. Magnarelli's a skillful trumpet player. Always sounds great on bop material. Solid rhythm section with Washington, Patton, and Karn. And I'm looking forward to see what direction uh, he's going to go next with his uh, sax work. Yeah, it was a pretty heavy uh, bebop night tonight, too. That's pretty yeah. interesting. We had a lot of yeah, really rhythmic, classical, and um, you know, bebop jazz. Yeah, I like the yeah. ensemble a lot. And Red Cross, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is my favorite track on this album. It was just highly caffeinated. Yeah, really speedy. They never reached that level of energy again on the album, but that's not a problem, really. It's a record that's got a lot of variety, and I really enjoyed it. Ukraine has high spirits. Ukraine, I should pronounce it that way, has really high spirits as well. And that was appealing to me. I really liked the the more upbeat tracks on this album the most, I think. Hmm. Um, I was also intrigued by the way all you, the things you are started with a solo. And we didn't hear the theme until the end. <laughs> you know, yeah. That was a pretty cool approach. It's something I'd like to hear more in jazz. I think it's kind of interesting. You know, There's a classical set of variations that does that too. I can't remember which one it is though. It's kind of funny because yeah. you know, Charlie Parker used to do that. Hmm. But you don't hear it too often uh, these days. That's too bad. I'd like to uh, encourage, you know, I know that we have a lot of jazz musician listeners, so I'd encourage them to try that approach because I think it sounds really cool. You're wondering what, what the tune is and then you find mm. out at the end. Yeah, it's a good album all the way through with a lot of variety. Soloists are all well matched. And I felt the trumpet and sax had the brighter moments on the album, although the piano... The piano, it's kind of like one of those matte sounding pianos. It has more of a burnished sound than like a bright sort of, um, mm. you know, sound that I rather like that too. He, he's got a lot of creativity in his playing and I definitely want to revisit this album too. Uh, again, more than I, I think this is true of any bebop record I hear. There's always more on there 
than I noticed the first or second time. So they kind of invite hmm. repeated listenings. And this one certainly did. Yeah. So mm. uh, uh, another up-and-coming sax player with a really good bebop foundation. And uh, he's got some nice original material, too. So be following along and see what he comes up with next. Mm. And there you have it. Uh, All-American yeah. sax recordings. And they all, they all kind of centered around New York. But yeah. uh, that just happened. Uh, we've done quite a few European and other excursions in recent episodes. Yeah. So we also had all contemporary American composers too in the classical end, which is pretty interesting too. You know, yeah, I've never done that before. It was very appealing. Yeah, that was cool. Hmm. And for next week, we've got a plan. It's going to be a guitar yeah. episode, our spring strings, I guess, I guess. Uh, something yeah. like that. I've got a kind of mix uh, one is a Brazilian yeah. guitar. So I'm looking forward to that. I've heard a few tracks from that. And I've got a uh, kind of unique take on Woody Shaw's, the great jazz trumpeter's music, but with guitar. Mm. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. going to be an exciting week of music to listen to. you got some Baroque guitar. There's a really exciting new uh, Baroque guitar album out um, by uh, Raphael uh, Fiatra. He's, he's a French guitarist playing El Baroque. And he's... Uh, He's just lighting up the internet with a lot of. Um, I should put maybe a, a you know post of him from YouTube on um, oh, yeah, our Facebook that. site because uh, people are really uh, raving about him. I'm really interested in hearing this record. And we've also got another Naxos release of uh, Carlo Domeniconi's music. He's an Italian composer, but he spent I think a lot of his life studying in Turkey, and he uses a lot of hmm. those um, Turkish and Arabic modes um, in his playing and. This is a, the, the work is called Sinbad, which really draws right from that part of the world. <laughs> Not Turkey, cool, but, yeah. you know, the, the North Africa kind of, you know, mm. sort of Middle Eastern kind of, you know, part of the world. It seems like a great subject for him, given his whole um, yeah. harmonic palette. So I'm really curious to hear that as well. Cool. Yeah. So if you want to check out those recordings early before the next podcast, a few hours after this gets published, I'll have the playlist available on Deezer, and there'll also be a link to it on our Facebook page, so you can come check that out early. And as I said, following this episode right at the end, we'll get little promos from those other podcasts, so be sure to have a listen to what they've got in their introductions. And if it sounds interesting, you can follow the links in the description below for some more music-related podcasts. Thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for a glowing neon logo. Any final thoughts there, Mike? Final thoughts? My thoughts are always final. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So it's been uh, a nice American-themed episode, and next week we'll be back with some strings and things all right. with guitar. Well, that's so. a potential good title. That's a... Yeah, write that down, Jason. Things. Right, as we as, as, that. as we now sign off <laughs> and try to come up with a name for this episode. title for this one, yeah. <laughs> Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something came from Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. 
Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.